the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Five real-life masked killers. Murderers are among some of the most vile people in the world, but sometimes their objective is more than just to kill. They also aim to terrify. The people on this list took terrifying to new heights all because they enjoyed it. These are five real-life masked killers. Number five, Fabian Kramer. At 19 years old, Fabian Kramer from Bellafield, Germany, became fascinated with the movie Saw in March of 2012. The film first came out in 2004 and featured a crazed murderer who kidnapped two men and chained them up in an underground bathroom. In order to get out, they had to saw their way to freedom. In what seemed to be a stroke of inspiration, Kramer put on a mask, the same one used in the film, went to his landlady's apartment, 82-year-old Hannah Litz, and stabbed her more than 50 times. What's even more strange is that just moments later, Fabian called the police to report what he had done, saying, Come quickly, someone is bleeding to death. When the police got there, he was kneeling beside his victim and pretending to save her life. He told the cops he was an ambulance man and he was doing his best to save her. He thought he could get away with that, but investigators concluded that with the amount of blood on his shirt, along with forensic evidence that it was Kramer who had killed Hannah in the first place. They searched his apartment, which was located just across from the landlady's room, and inside they found the evidence they needed, a yellow-handled kitchen knife, which was used to kill a victim. Disturbingly, police discovered the mask he used as well, splashed with blood. Fabian was arrested, but denies he was involved with the crime. In fact, even his lawyer doesn't know why the teen killed Hannah. It seems, though, he must have been thinking about the murder for some time, and only found the courage right after he watched the movie. Despite having no clear reason on why he killed, the judge pronounced him to be a clear menace to society and sentenced him to 10 years inside a psychiatric facility. Number 4. Alex Mengel It began on February 24, 1985, when Alex Mengel's vehicle was pulled over for a traffic violation in Westchester, New York, by Officer Gary Stimulowski. Inside the car was Mengel and three of his friends. After the officer found shotguns in the trunk, he asked for a license, but Mengel didn't have one. He called dispatch to run a license and registration check, but Mengel had other plans. He pulled an unregistered handgun out from underneath the vehicle's front seat, approached the officer, and shot him point-blank. 
He then told his friends to take his car and go home. Mengel then took the patrol car, drove it for about a mile before abandoning it. Police found it an hour later. Officer Stimulowski was wounded on the passenger's seat and later died at the hospital. On February 25th, the day after the shooting, Mengel abducted 44-year-old IBM employee Beverly Capone. At 8 p.m., she was headed to the parking lot but vanished along with her white Toyota. A day later, nearly four hours away in a town near Syracuse, New York, a 13-year-old girl on her paper route said a white vehicle pulled up next to her. The driver pointed a gun and instructed her to get in the car, but instead of doing that, she took off running. She described the driver as wearing an unusual disguise and said he had on a wig of long black hair, lipstick, and a dress, and when asked to identify the person in a photo lineup, the girl picked Mengel. A week later, on March 2nd, the white Toyota was spotted in Scarborough, Toronto. A high-speed chase ensued and ended when the vehicle skidded on ice. Mengel was captured, and inside the car, they found Capone's driver's license, with a picture of Mengel pasted on top of Capone's photo. They also found a wig of long black hair. During questioning, Mengel denied knowing Capone and insisted he just took her car from a parking lot. Officers then retraced his steps, and it led to a remote cabin that had been broken into. Hidden in the drawer was Capone's IBM ID card, and later on, dogs found her body buried in a stone wall close to the cabin. Beverly had been stabbed multiple times in the chest. Mengel then scalped her head, taking her long black hair. This was the wig the officers had found in the car. The face on her skin was also carefully peeled off. It's believed Mengel decided to use Capone's hair and possibly her face as a mask in order to escape. Weeks after the arrest, Mengel was charged for the murder of the officer in Westchester and arranged for Capone's. On the way back from court, despite handcuffs and shackles, he tried to escape by stealing the gun from an officer next to him. The other officer was forced to stop the vehicle and shoot Mengel, killing him. Mengel may have also been involved in other murders, including that of 13-year-old Antonella Matina. She disappeared in 1984 after running an errand. Her skull with braces still on her teeth was found years later. Mengel's brother Gustav lived six blocks from that girl back in 1984, but he's a registered sex offender who now resides in Florida. To add to the suspicion, when Alex was killed, officers found photos of women inside his wallet. He also had a map of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with marks on wooded locations. However, what the map indicated or suggested exactly has never been determined. Number 3. Danny Rawling To shock, titillate, and terrify, Danny Rawlings employed all three when he murdered five Gainesville, Florida students between November and August of 1990. Rawlings' disturbed behavior formed during his early years. A product of an abusive household, he grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana with a sadistic police officer father. His mother allowed the abuse and never protected her sons. In his teens, he dropped out of school and started a series of robberies in Georgia, and when he became an adult, it wasn't any better. He couldn't hold a job and returned to burglaries and petty theft, lending himself in and out of jail. By 1990, he moved back home but got into a fight with his dad and almost killed him. Rawling fled and ended up in Florida, and it's here that his reign of murderous terror escalated. 
On August 24, 1990, Danny broke into the apartment of college freshman Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. He first headed upstairs where Sonia was sleeping and attacked her, taping her mouth shut, binding her wrists, and then stabbing her to death. Next, he went back downstairs where Powell was sleeping on the couch and attacked her. Rawling then mutilated the bodies, cutting parts of the victims and posing them suggestively. The next day, he broke into 18-year-old Christina Hoyt's apartment. He found it empty but decided to wait. As Hoyt arrived back at around 11 a.m., Rawling surprised her from behind the door and subdued her. He taped her mouth and bound her wrist before stabbing her in the back. Rawling cut off her head and placed it on a shelf facing the body. But Rawling wasn't done. He entered another apartment, this time that of Manuel Tabota, who was 23, and his roommate Tracy Pauls. The two had been friends since high school. As both were asleep, Rawling broke into the unit and attacked Manuel first. Despite the scuffle between the two men, Rawling overpowered and killed him. Tracy woke up to the commotion and barricaded herself inside her bedroom, but Rawling eventually got to her. He bound, sexually assaulted, and then stabbed her to death. Her body was also posed. By this time, Gainesville was in a panic. It took months before Rawling's name was tied to the crime. In fact, an initial suspect was blamed and the investigation was dropped after they were apprehended. When Danny was arrested for a series of burglaries, the cops found his camping site in the woods. His items were collected but never investigated until later on. When they finally did, they matched his tools to Mark's in Hoyt's apartment. His tape deck also contained original songs and recordings of himself talking about the murders. Since then, he has been dubbed the Gainesville Ripper and he was found guilty and sentenced to death via lethal injection. Before he died, he left a written statement confessing to the Shreveport murders as well where a family of three were killed in November of 1989, and it was Danny Rawlings' crimes that inspired the movie Scream. Number 2. Hayden Clark Hayden Clark hailed from Troy, New York and was born and raised in an affluent family, but despite the abundance, abuse played prominently within the household. Both parents were alcoholics, and when they drank, the four children took the brunt of it. Haddon, however, had it worse than the others. During his childhood, his father called him a retard, while his mother dressed him in girls' clothes and called him Kristen. It didn't help that at school, Clark was also heavily bullied. He retaliated by torturing animals, decapitating them, and leaving their heads at the front doors of the kids who bullied him. When he left home, he attended the Culinary Institute of America, and graduated as a chef. This got him into various chef positions on cruise liners, premier hotels, and restaurants, but because of his erratic behavior, he was often fired. He finally joined the U.S. Navy as a cook, but the shipmates didn't take kindly to him after they found out that he liked to wear women's underwear. In the end, he was discharged and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. After leaving the Navy, he stayed with his older brother, Jeff, in Silver Springs, Maryland. He stayed for a while, but was asked to leave after he masturbated in front of his niece. On May 31, 1986, a six-year-old neighbor named Michelle Dore came by looking for Clark's young niece. Nobody else was home, and Clark was packing his belongings. Clark told the girl that she was upstairs in the bedroom, but once there, he stabbed and killed Michelle. He cannibalized her and then stuffed her body in a duffel bag 
and buried the remains in a shallow grave at a nearby park. It would take years before Clark would be linked to the crime. Instead, police focused on Michelle's father as the suspect. For a while, Clark lived in his truck and found odd jobs to sustain him. In 1989, he was arrested for assaulting his mother and shoplifting women's clothes. In 1992, he was working as a gardener for Penny Houtling in Bethesda, Maryland. Clark was enamored with Penny, so when Laura, Penny's daughter, returned home from college, he was resentful of her presence. Clark snuck into Laura's bedroom, dressed in women's clothing, on October 17, 1992, and woke her up, asking her why she was sleeping in his bed. Then at gunpoint, he ordered her to undress and take a bath. Afterwards, he covered her mouth with duct tape, which caused her to suffocate and die. He then took the body and buried it in a shallow grave close to his campsite. A month later, Clark was arrested in relation to Laura's disappearance after a bloody fingerprint on one of her pillowcases was discovered in Clark's possession. It wasn't until later when he finally told police where he buried the girl's body. In prison, he bragged to inmates about killing Michelle Dore. He later told police where to find the body and sure enough, it was buried five minutes away from Michelle's home. Clark confessed to other killings, but police are hesitant to take him seriously because of his schizophrenic state. He did, however, lead authorities to a buried bucket filled with jewelry that he said he collected as trophies. Among the various items in the bucket was Laura's class ring. He is presently incarcerated at the Eastern Correctional Institute, serving two 30-year sentences for the murders and one 10-year sentence for robbery. Number 1. Edward Paisnell Known as the Beast of Jersey, Edward Paisnell inspired terror on Channel Island Jersey off the English Channel. Between 1960 and 1971, he victimized unsuspecting children and women before he was finally captured. On the outside and to the children, he was known as Uncle Ted, a kind, genial man who dressed up as Santa Claus for Christmas, gave them gifts, and laughed. Edward's mother-in-law ran a children's home called La Preference, which Edward frequented. He also hung out at another children's home called Haute de la Garenne. Meanwhile, he and his wife hosted orphans in their own home. All this gave him very easy access to his victims. What set him apart was his panache for theatrics and terror. During his attacks, Edward wore a woman's black wig and a rubber mask with an image of a disfigured person. His long coat had inch-long nails studding on the shoulders, and he also wore nail-studded wrist bracelets. He would creep inside the homes or the children's center and abduct the victims right from their beds. Afterwards, he would place a noose around their necks before subjecting them to rape, sodomy, and his sick, twisted desires. Edward stalked the victims to a certain extent, only attacking when he knew they would be alone. At least 24 victims have come forward, most living at the children's homes during the time who claim to have been victimized by the beast. Multiple attacks naming the Beast of Jersey as the culprit soon spread in the aisles, but Edward was never suspected. For 11 years, he operated this way until July 17, 1971, when he was stopped by police for running a red light. He thought that authorities had figured out that he was the Beast of Jersey, and he also didn't want them to find out about the car he had stole just that evening. He attempted to evade, and a car chase ensued. Eventually, he was caught 
and when police investigated the vehicle, they found his beast costume. He was immediately arrested and soon victims started coming forward. It was discovered that for the entirety of the crime spree, Edward lived a Jekyll and Hyde existence. By day, he was a builder and a pillar of local society, even once calling on the cops to arrest and find the beast victimizing the area. But behind closed doors, he was heavily fascinated by the occult and adored the notorious 15th century French nobleman, Gilles Duray. Duray is the man modeled after the legend of Bluebeard, a terrifying figure in folklore who kidnapped children and offered them to the devil as sacrifice. When police searched his residence, they found a secret shrine that he had built for Satan. It was an altar, heavily decorated with occult items and symbols. It was here where Edward would sacrifice small animals as he prepared for the night's work. Edward was convicted of 13 counts of assault, sodomy, and rape, and sentenced to 30 years in prison. He served his sentence and was released in 1991, where he then went back to the Isle of Wight, where he died three years later at the age of 68. In 2008, a small child's skull was found in the area of the Isle where the orphanage once stood. It was the same orphanage Edward once frequented, and it's believed he may have been responsible for countless missing children in the area. So there were five real-life masked killers. Murderers often try to hide who they truly are to the public at large by telling lies. For these killers, they physically embodied a lie, a different person altogether by wearing masks, hoping to fool, terrify, and ultimately terrorize their victims. If you enjoyed watching this, then give it a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel because every Wednesday and Saturday we have new videos that you're going to want to check out. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you soon.